Good morning. My name is Kyle Bobus. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. We are continuing our series going through Paul's letter to the Romans that we started last fall. And this morning, we're halfway done. Um, so we are going to finish Romans 8. And as I said two weeks ago when I preached on the middle portion, this really is one of the richest portions, um, the richest, richest passages in all of Scripture. We could do a whole 15-week series just on Romans 8. So if you have questions about Romans 8 that we don't cover today, that's fine. We're gonna, I'm expecting you to because we can't cover everything. Um, but we need to know this. Whether you're familiar with this passage from Paul or not, um, I want you to know that these are deeply profound truths from Scripture this morning. Um, they are meant to recalibrate you and your whole person, your whole life. That if we actually lay hold of and grab on to these truths, it'll change everything about our lives. You need to know that no matter what happens in your life, what happens to you, what happens around you, no matter what happens, this passage is true. And so as we come to our text today, um, we know, we all admit that the world is broken, that we are broken that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. We've experienced it. We're currently experiencing it. We will experience it in the future. There's great groaning that we talked about two weeks ago. There's great pain, great suffering, great confusion, despair, discouragement, and doubt. That's the reality in which we live in, and Paul is writing into that reality this morning. He's speaking to Christians in Rome and across time to encourage them, to encourage you, to basically give you a hug from Scripture this morning. And that is, to be honest with you, that's how I see my job this morning, is to give you a hug from the pulpit using Paul's words this morning. Um, to encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to, and if you're not, if you don't know who Jesus is this morning, if you're unsure of who he is, to invite you into this embrace, to invite you into this family, so let's jump in together to study God's word given for his glory and our good. I'll read Romans 8, verses 26 to 39. Hear the word of our Lord. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine 
or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in desperate need of knowing and believing these truths from your word. We don't believe them if we're honest. We don't want to. It's hard to. Our experience tells us something totally different. And yet, we can trust your word. And you say these things are true about yourself. You say these things are true about the way you feel and care and pursue and have worked for your people. So, Father, soften our hearts this morning. For those who know you, encourage them, challenge them by your grace. For those who don't know you, draw them near. Show them that they are loved in this way. Father, meet with all of us this morning. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Two years ago, um, when Jude was two, uh, we bought him his first Lego set. We were at Target, got this little tiny small Batman and Joker set. It was 124 pieces of cake, right? We got home, promised him that I was going to work on it so he could play with it before bed. I was a little out of practice because I haven't played with Lego since I was eight. And so it took me like an hour to build this 124-piece set. Um, Finally finished it, handed it to Jude. Got up, walked to the kitchen, got a drink of water, turned around, and it was completely destroyed, as if I had just emptied the bag out and had handed it to him. Um, He had took every piece apart and had completely destroyed the whole thing, making my whole hour of work completely useless. Um, The Lego set I had built had fallen apart, um, but really it was actively dismantled and torn apart by my son. But if we're honest, isn't that what life feels like so much for us? Things are just falling apart around us everywhere we turn. And sometimes it feels like things are actively being torn apart and dismantled piece by piece. So at the end of the day, it feels like we have nothing. That's what Paul is speaking into this morning. In the face of the groaning and the suffering that we talked about two weeks ago, in the face of struggle and temptation and great sin and failure in the face of despair and discouragement and undoubt and uncertainty, when it feels like God doesn't care, when it feels like you're all alone, when it feels like nothing matters, as followers of Jesus, how are we supposed to live? Paul says, in the face of all of that, you can live with great confidence because of who God is and what he's done for you. So how can we live with confidence in the face that's all that's wrong and falling apart around us and inside of us? The first thing Paul encourages us to this morning is that we have a helper in the Holy Spirit. Look with me at verse 26 and 27. Paul starts in the same way. In the same way that the Spirit helps us and leads us 
earlier in the passage that he testifies with us that we are God's adopted children and co-heirs with Christ if we're trusting in Jesus. He helps us in our weakness. He helps us in our prayers. Now, if you're like me this week, you're thinking, great. Thanks, God. Um, You're helping me with my prayers. That's not really what I need. This is how you want to help me? And if we're there, I'd suggest to us that it's because we don't value prayer as much as the Holy Spirit does. And it's because we value our own strength too much. But as those who love Jesus, and Paul includes himself here, he says there are times when we all don't know what we ought to pray for. Paul includes himself. We don't know what we ought to pray for. There are times where we don't know how to pray, much less what to even pray for in the midst of great loss, in the midst of depression and anxiety and fear and struggle and shame and abuse and facing big decisions in the face of our own failures and the messes that we've made or the hurt that's been hurled upon us by those who have promised to love us. When we feel lost, when we feel alone and abandoned, when we feel like we can't even raise our heads up to the heavens to God, let alone speak to him. When we feel too weak to approach God as Abba Father, the Spirit helps us. He intercedes for us. He stands in the way. So even when you don't know what to pray or you feel like you have nothing to offer but your silence and your tears, you can still come before this God, taking those things before him because you have the Holy Spirit who stands before God on your behalf and takes your silence and he takes your tears and he takes your groans and he makes them God-glorifying prayer that are in accordance with his plans and his purposes. You're not alone. You have one who knows you, who searches your heart, Paul says, who pours over you and studies you and knows you deeply and intimately. He hears the motives behind your requests, behind the groans, behind the tears, and he prays on your behalf in line with God's plans and purposes. So that means when the times when we're lost and we're confused and we don't know what to pray for, and we're even praying the wrong things maybe, we have a helper who knows the very mind of God and is so known by God that he prays for what we actually need. Now his agenda might be the exact opposite of your prayer agenda because he's more concerned with us knowing God, being in relationship with him, growing in our reliance upon him rather than us understanding everything, rather than us getting our way all the time. He prays, actually, for what we would have asked for had we known everything that God knows. So sometimes we pray for relief, which is good, and yet the Spirit may be praying for us to rest in God's love. We might be praying to be bailed out of a situation, and the Spirit may be praying that we are actually fall down on our knees and bow down before our God. So even though we might be totally confused, totally uncertain we have a helper who's not lost or confused or uncertain who is totally in control and who is so intimately involved and known by god himself that even when we can't make the words come out and all we can offer is our tears god translates it 
Listen to Psalm 6, 8. It says, the Lord has heard the voice of my tears. So you can pray with confidence, even in the midst of confusion, because you have a helper who knows you and loves you and translates your, your wordless groans, translates your tears into prayers that are pleasing to the Father. So you can be confident to pray. You don't ever need to feel like you can't pray, like I don't have anything to offer. I don't know anything. I can't pray. I don't want to pray. You can still come before our God because he loves you and he knows you and he's there to help. But it's not just that we can live in confidence with our prayers um, because we have a helper. It's also we can live in confidence because of God's work of grace in our lives. God is working. He has worked and he will work. Look at verse 28. First, God is working. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Now, this verse is often misused and is often offered as trite encouragement to those who are truly in the midst of great suffering and tragedy and loss. And if this has happened to you, I'm sorry. That is not what Paul is meaning here. He is meaning to bring you life here. He is hoping to encourage you here. His intent is not to offer you trite help in the midst of your pain. This verse, what, what does it mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that all things are just going to work out by themselves, um, that life is just going to be endlessly happy like Pollyanna, just cheer up because like the Bob Marley song, everything's going to be all right. Sometimes we're shocked. Sometimes we're disillusioned by divorce and cancer, by depression and addiction, by tragedy and failure and death. Paul's saying here that Christians shouldn't be. We know that life is hard and difficult. It doesn't make sense. We can agree in part with what Wesley from The Princess Bride says. Life is pain, princess. Anyone who says any different is trying to sell you something. We don't expect things to work out for our own good. Or, sorry, we don't expect things to work out for good just on their own. But, Paul says, we know, we know, it's certain, it's true, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, it's not for everyone, but it's for those who love God, who've been called according to his purpose. Again, we don't understand this. God, how can you use cancer? How can you use divorce? How can you use sin? How can you use addiction and brokenness and abuse in these terrible circumstances for good it doesn't feel good it doesn't look good it isn't good yet paul's able to say that in all things good and bad small and big momentous and mundane that god works for the good of those who love him he is at work there are no accidents God is in control, and there is not one square inch of his creation that he doesn't shout, mine. Even when life goes wrong, for those who are in Jesus, ultimately, it hasn't gone wrong at all. Why? Because God is at work. Now, the why, we don't know. But the why is not as important as the who. And the who is what Paul is trying to get us to see 
and wrestle and lay hold of in this passage. The one who has a hold of you, the one who doesn't let go, the one who works all things for your good is in control and he loves you. Now, this doesn't mean that our circumstances are necessarily going to work out and change in this life, that we're ultimately going to get what we ask or what we want. John Newton once wrote this. He said, everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Again, there's a great mystery here. But Paul and John Newton are saying that if we think we need something good, um, that if, we, if there's some good thing that God has withheld from us, the truth is we really don't need it. And if something's playing out that it looks or feels like it's ruining our lives, verse 29 says it's actually conforming us into the image of Jesus. Verse 29 says that is the good that God is working towards in our lives, that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus, that we might reflect him more and more in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, in our sacrifice, and even sharing in his family likeness of suffering that verse 18 talked about earlier. This isn't, you know, behind every cloud there's a silver lining. You and I both know there might be a thunderbolt on the other side. Our difficulties and our tragedies and our pain are not to be welcomed. They're not to be enjoyed. We fight against them. We pray against them. We groan against them. And we long for God's kingdom to come in every nook and cranny of our lives and this universe. But as Christians, we're called not to despair in our suffering and say nothing good can come from this. And we're not called to just enjoy our suffering, feeling that we're more noble and virtuous because we're suffering. But we can live with confidence. We can live without fear or anxiety in the face of our terrible circumstances. And we can face them with confidence because we have a God who works all things, even bad things, for our good. This is who this God is. This is what he is about. This is who he always has been. Look at the story of Joseph in Genesis. He told his brothers who sold him into slavery, slavery, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. You're the, the people of God in the Exodus. God enters in. He rescues them from slavery, and he makes them his people. And look at John 11. Jesus standing at the tomb of Lazarus with his friend. He doesn't make their tears just dismiss them. He doesn't say, look what I'm about to do. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus, and he cries. It says he weeps, and that word weeps means he angry, snot-filled, scary tears. Not like this single, solitary, like just little one little tear trickled down his cheek. Jesus is shouting at death because he hates it, because he knows what it's going to cost to defeat it. Death, pain, our suffering, they don't belong here. But we can have confidence in our God because he works in all things. Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, a paraplegic who suffered great loss and tragedy in her life, she says this, God permits that which he hates to achieve what he loves. God can, he is, and he will take all that is broken and sad in this life, and he will undo it once and for all. The most evil thing that has ever happened on this planet, the thing that I'll speak for myself, if I was there standing at the foot of the cross, 
watching Jesus breathe his last, I would have lost all hope. What good can come from this? You said you were the one. You said you were the one that was going to save us, and you're dead. What hope is there? What good can come from this? But God used the greatest evil that was ever perpetrated on his son to be the greatest good that this world would ever know. So if God can take Jesus' death on the cross and he can bring resurrection and he can change the whole trajectory of the universe and of our lives, then God can take the suffering. God can take the pain that you and I experience it and he can use it for his good. Bad things always will work for our good if we're his, Paul says, because God is at work. Again, we may not know why, we may not understand, but we have his promise, we know the who, and that brings great confidence to not live in fear or insecurity because we have a father who loves us and is at work for our good. But it's not just that he's at work, he has worked. Very quickly, I was talking to my brother this week, and we looked at this passage together, and he laughed and said, how are you preaching all of this in like one sermon? I I said, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to happen. So that's where we're at today. So we're going to just blaze through the rest of the passage, and we should spend like six months just digging through it. But listen, quickly, verse 29 and 30, we have five past tense verbs that are actions by God. They're works of his grace. You can have confidence because God has worked. One, God foreknew. Now that doesn't mean that God just looked out into the future and he saw all of your actions and all the facts and everything about you. It does mean that, but it means so much more because to know in the Bible is an intimate relational term. And in the Old Testament, it's put up against um, and contrast by being rejected by God. And so what it means is to be foreknown by God here by Paul says, it's to have God set his affection on you. It's to have him for love you. That from the beginning of time, from before the beginning of time, he looked out, he saw you, and he put his love on you. Not because of anything that you would do, not because of anything you wouldn't do, but because he loved you. And then second, he predestined you. Now, this is not the time or place, and Paul actually isn't trying to enter into a philosophical debate here about God's sovereignty and free will. He's trying to encourage you in the midst of pain and suffering. God has predestined you. That means that he has planned ahead of time. He has determined that you would be his, that he would love you and you would love him, and he would conform you to the image of his son. He chose you. And then third, he called you. This is about your conversion, that at one point in life, if you are a believer, you've heard the gospel, you've heard the goodness of God, you've heard the greatness of your sin, you've heard the beauty of God's grace in Jesus, and you responded because you were called, because you were chosen. And then you've been justified, it says. You've been pronounced legally as righteous and as without blame because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection on your behalf. Your status has forever been changed from orphan, slave, enemy of God, into dearly loved, adopted child, co-heir with Jesus, brother and sister of Jesus. His perfect record was given to you, so now it is in your account, and it's forever, and it has happened, and it's in the past, 
and you are part of his family now and it can't be taken away. Then, Paul's even crazier and he says this, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Glorified is in the past tense here. You and I both know that's not true, right? We are not perfect. We struggle. We do not have perfect bodies. They are continually falling apart. There is going to be a day, though, when God will finally and ultimately make us like Jesus. He will rid ourselves completely of our sin. We will be wholly pure, wholly complete. We will be unable to sin and only able to do that that which pleases the Father. So why is it in the past tense here? Because it is as certain as the things that God has already done in the past. It's a sure thing. This chain here all goes together. You can't be foreknown without being predestined. You can't be predestined without being called. You can't be called without being justified. And you can't be justified without being glorified. If you get one, you get it all. The best way for you to know how God will treat you in the future is to look at how he's treated you in the past. So if God has demonstrated his love and his grace to you, if he's chosen you, if he's loved you, if he's justified you, he's going to glorify you. Look at the work that God is doing. Look at the work that he has done and look at the work that he will do. Knowing that, resting in that, actually gives you great confidence, drives you to worship, drives you to share. Look at this God who's loved me this way. And lastly, it's not just that we have a helper in the Holy Spirit and we have God's work that give us confidence. In verse 31, after hearing all of this, after hearing all of Romans up until this point, especially starting in chapter 5, Paul closes chapter 8 with some of the most profound verses in all of Scripture. He asks five questions that drive home his point here. What shall we say in response to this? Then he closes in verse 39 with nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're going to, again, I said, we're going to look really briefly at these eight verses, but I want you to go home this week. I want you to read them. Pour over these verses. Let them soak in. Let the truth of God's love and commitment to you overwhelm you and transform you because if we're honest, we really don't believe these words. We really don't believe that God cares for us, that God loves us. We don't believe that he's for us. We think our pain means he's not here. Or if he is here, he doesn't care. Or we think, man, my sin is too great. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what's been done to me. There has to be a breaking point where God says, enough. You're too dirty. You're too messed up. You're too disgusting. You've done this too many times. I'm tired of it. I'm done with you. That's what we feel like. Paul knows that's where our hearts go. Martin Luther said, I can believe this gospel for everyone else except for myself. And that's true for me, and I would be willing to bet it's true for you as well. And that's why we need to hear God's heart here and his posture towards us. Look with me at verses 31 to 39. If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is no one. Nothing. 
if God has loved you, if he has called you, if he has purposed your future glory, if he's all-powerful and in control of everything, why are you afraid of any other opposition? If you're his, no one can touch you. The only voice that matters in the scheme of things screams, I love you. You are mine. I'm for you. And how do we know that? Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God busted up the Trinity. He sent Jesus. He turned his back on him on the cross, forsaking him, so he could have you. So he could have you. Jesus took all of the punishment, all of the condemnation, all of the silence, all of the forsakenness from God on the cross that you and I deserved so that you and I would get none of it. So that we would get glory. So that we would get Jesus' perfect record. So that we would be made children. So that we would get Jesus' inheritance. So that we would receive no condemnation. There's none left for you. Stop trying to grab hold of it. It's been taken away. God is saying, think. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things is the next question. He's saying, think. I gave you my son. I didn't hold him back from you. Why would I stop now? I'm going to provide for all of your needs You don't have to worry. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to be afraid. Then verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. God has chosen you. He's made you his. He's made you right. He's made you perfect in Jesus so that when he looks at you, if you're his, he sees Jesus. He doesn't see your broken, rebellious, sinful self. He sees perfection, and he dances, and he rejoices. Why would you feel guilty and ashamed and unforgiven? You're perfect in his eyes. You are loved. You are cherished. You are right and you are forgiven. And that's your reality whether you feel it or not. And then verse 34, who then is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The only one who could condemn you if you're a believer is Jesus. And he died for you. And he was risen for you. Christ can't condemn you because he won't. Because he died and rose for you. The only one capable of condemning you is Jesus. And he refuses to do so. Because he's spent his life on your behalf. And he's risen from the dead. And he's ascended into heaven. And he is sitting right now at this very second interceding to the Father on your behalf, why would he turn his back on you? It's not going to happen. It won't happen. He's your advocate working and praying for you. He's not going to turn around and condemn you now after he's done all of that. Be free, Paul is saying. There's no condemnation for you. And then 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's the central question that Paul is after. Is there anyone or anything that can separate me from Christ's love for me? Because if we're honest, it looks like it. It feels like it. My experience tells me that it is likely. But listen to Paul's answer. 
Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you think of anything else to add to Paul's list? It's pretty all-encompassing, and that's the point. Whatever you want to add to it, cancer, divorce, your sin, your brokenness, it doesn't matter because nothing, nothing in our human experience, nothing that anyone can impose on us or that we can impose on ourselves, nothing in the spiritual realm, nothing in time, nothing in space, nothing in all of creation, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because God simply loves you because he chose to. Not because of anything in us that is likely to change. Not because of anything around us that's going to change. He loves us because he loves us. So, you can face all of life with all of its uncertainty, all of its pain, all of its trials, all of its fear, all of its discouragements, all of its uncertainty and doubt with confidence because you are loved. You are safe in Him. And it's totally of grace. You didn't do anything to get it and you can't do anything to lose it. You can be confident that if you're trusting in Jesus, no matter what happens ever, nothing will separate you from His love. Joe Novenson, a pastor in Lookout Mountain, Tennessee, tells a story of when his youngest daughter, Ellie, was little. He'd put her on, her, on his lap and he would say, Ellie, would I still love you if you told a lie? She looked at him and thought for a second and said, yeah, you'd, you'd still love me. He said, okay, Ellie, what if you stole something? Would I still love you? She thought again for a second and Mm, yeah, you'd still love me. Now, Ellie, what if you robbed a bank and you hurt everyone in there? Would I still love you? Ellie put her head down and said, no. He said, this is the greatest thing in the whole world. Oh, yes, I would, Ellie. There is nothing that can separate you from my love. I will never stop. Nothing will ever make me stop loving you. That's exactly what Paul wants you to hear this morning. It's exactly what you and I need to hear every day of our lives. You can have confidence because if you are Jesus's, there is nothing that can separate you from his love, that can make him stop loving you. Do you know that this morning? Would you like to? Has anyone else ever loved you like this? Neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please pray with me. Father, you are so good. We hear these words and we are overwhelmed and I'm The second we walk out of here, the second we turn our heads, we are going to forget it. 
Help us to remember. Help us to know you. Meet with us at this table that we might know you. We thank you that you will never stop loving us. May we grab hold of that this morning through your bread and wine of Christ's body and blood. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We come now.